0: No one
1: as special as you.
0: Welcome to the Periscope, presented by Lewis Brisboy, the podcast that explores the challenges of today and opportunities for tomorrow. My name is Stephen Beer, co-chair of the Entertainment, Media, and Sports practice at Lewis Brisbois. Joining me, as usual, is my co-chair, Jonathan Pink, and today we have two special guest hosts. Greg Clifton, captain of our sports team in the Entertainment, Media, and Sports Practice Group, and Associate Christina Stigliano, Associate Attorney in our group. Our sports group regularly handles an array of matters within the professional and collegiate sports space. Within the professional sports space, they work with teams in all major league level sports on various labor and employment issues, including senior executive contract issues, media rights and sponsorship negotiations, as well as arbitrations, including salary arbitration cases for MLB clients. On a college side, Our practice represents individual schools and conferences on issues including those related to alleged NCAA bylaw violations and internal investigations, name, image, and likeness, legal advice, and policy drafting, Title IX general advice and guidance, as well as performing internal Title IX compliance audits, labor and employment legal issues, including NLRB issues, arbitrations, and defending employment claims, and the varied issues currently arising from the NCAA Transformation Committee. In this special episode, we speak with Jody S. Balsam, professor of law and member of the faculty of Brooklyn Law School, where she teaches sports law and directs the externship program. She also teaches the sports law course at NYU School of Law. Jody is a co-author of the Weiler Sports and Law, the leading law school casebook in the field. She serves on the editorial boards of Law 360, Sports Embedding, the Journal of Legal Aspects of Sport, and the International Sports Law blog, Law in Sport. Jody frequently writes and speaks on sports law topics, including as the legal analyst for NBC Sports, the Golf Channel, and as a sports law expert for ESPN, MSNBC, The New York Times, USA Today, and The Wall Street Journal. Before joining academia, Jody was the National Football League's Counsel for Operations and Litigation, and prior to that, an antitrust litigator with the New York firm Simpson, Thatcher, and Bartlett. Jody served as a law clerk on both the Federal District Court and the Second Circuit Court in Manhattan. A graduate of Yale College, Professor Balsam received her law degree from NYU School of Law. So let's ask Jody some of the things that we've been thinking about and working on. Specifically, I want to begin by discussing the NIL exploitation. We're approaching two-year anniversary of the NIL era. In the first year to year and a half, we saw tons of new activity with respect to deals being made, state legislation being proposed, enacted, changed, repealed, debate and state legislation over NIL for high school student athletes, increased involvement by collectives in a number of different areas. NIL deal making or facilitating recruitment involvement and increased booster involvement from the year and a half mark onwards, we start to see enforcement and issues for potential litigation arise. And I know that you have a background in antitrust, Jody, so I just want to kick off the famous Alston decision, which heralded the NIL era. That was a matter of antitrust. I was hoping you might be able to discuss the basis for how we approach this NIL. How did this happened in the first place, name, image, and likeness?
2: So the fact is that Alston does not address NIL. The era began with state legislation, as states responding to outcry over the treatment of college athletes, one by one enacted statutes that reinstated college athlete name, image, and likeness rights. The NCAA had long prohibited college athletes from monetizing their publicity rights as a form of creeping professionalism to retain college athletes' amateur status. Uh, They would be declared ineligible if they were to do the things that are now routine in the last year and a half. Um, That state legislation built to momentum in the spring of 2021 at the same time that the Alston antitrust lawsuit was being argued in front of the Supreme Court. The Alston antitrust decision that came down in June of 2021 does not once use the words name, image, likeness, or publicity rights. It has nothing to do with intellectual property. It's a pure antitrust suit. However, two weeks after it came down, the first NIL statute became effective. And at that moment, the NCAA had a decision to make about how it would handle the new state-legislated NIL era. One option on the table up until about the time Alston came down was a potential constitutional challenge to this state legislation. And I believe that one of the reasons that challenge was abandoned is because reading the tea leaves of Alston, it didn't look likely that any court would be receptive to the NCAA's arguments to preserve amateurism by judicially repealing the state name image likeness laws. What Austin addressed was other aspects of the NCAA's regulatory regime. Specifically, the NCAA's rules that colleges may offer only limited benefits in recruiting high school athletes or recruiting through the transfer portal. Benefits limited to what used to be called cost of attendance. Those benefits included room, board, tuition, Books and a few thousand dollars, typically in the three to five thousand dollar range of ordinary expenses that college athletes, in fact, any student on campus usually incur. The NCAA was capping benefits that can be offered to college athletic recruits to cost of attendance up through the Alston case, which examined that cap and found it not justified for whatever pro competitive benefits that the amateur athletic product delivered to consumers, and that the cap on what colleges can offer should be higher. The new cap is referred to as education-related benefits. So it's room, board, tuition, books, day-to-day expenses, plus any item that a college can argue is related to the student's education, like summer internships at Nike that have an educational benefit or postgraduate vocational tuition, or study abroad. So all of a sudden, the landscape is far broader as to what, under the post-Alston world, colleges can offer in recruiting college athletes. Of course, two weeks after Alston came down, the first NIL law became effective. And even though the NCAA continues to ban using NIL opportunities as improper recruiting inducements, that is exactly what's going on. So the colleges are competing not only with respect to offering education-related benefits, but there's no doubt that they're also offering NIL-related compensation, even if they disguise it through outside collectives or booster opportunities.
0: I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about these collectives. I've been reading about them and hearing about them, but I'd love to uh, hear from you about the genesis of them.
2: Well, universities themselves are somewhat hamstrung in generating opportunities for their athletes to monetize their celebrity. Um, They're hamstrung in a couple of ways. Uh, One is that the NCAA still articulates a ban on improper recruiting inducements. All right, so they would be violating NCAA rules if they directly created NIL opportunities as a recruiting inducement. Secondly, there's Title IX, which you referred to earlier in your opening remarks. And Title IX requires universities to treat their male and female athletes equitably, including with respect to how the sports are funded and how students are induced to enroll through scholarships and other benefits. If the universities were directly generating NIL opportunities, then in the Title IX compliance accounting of what is being offered to different categories of students, male and female students, since a lot of the NIL opportunities tend to flow towards the high revenue sports, football, basketball, the university would be deemed complicit in equitably distributing the financial support related to athletics to male and female athletes. So as I said, the universities are hamstrung. They can't be the ones, for reasons of Title IX and reasons of NCA regulations, to directly deliver the compensation for NIL exploitation to the athletes. So who's going to do it? Well, I imagine that the state legislators who enacted these NIL statutes were thinking that organically, industries, businesses, media outlets who felt they could benefit from association with college athletes would reach out to individual athletes and offer them endorsement deals or other ways to help them monetize their publicity rights. What actually happened is that it became immediately apparent that NIL opportunities could be used to recruit athletes. And boosters, people associated with the schools wanted to take advantage of this to lure the most promising young athletes to their programs. And the way to do this most effectively is to organize, to collect a number of opportunities and channel them through a branding or marketing agency, one of of these NIL collectives, and collaborate and amass resources to do this in an organized way that is undeniably being used as a recruiting inducement. And I think the universities are skirting infraction charges only by virtue of trying to maintain arm's length distance from these collectives.
1: If I could jump in for a second, Professor, you know, you touched on a couple of really important issues, and I just want to take a step back if we could for a second. You were talking about the state laws, as I like to call some of them, they were really political photo opportunities uh, where Republicans and Democrats got together and said, we're behind college athletes but most of them are really powerless in terms of enforcement. You touched on the NCAA a second ago in terms of enforcing some of these, of their still temporary policy as well as these state laws. Where do you see the enforcement mechanism, whether it be on the state level or the federal level or the NCAA, headed over the next several months?
2: So I don't see much resources or effort being put in enforcement by any of those enforcement entities, state, federal, or the NCAA. The NCAA, to to sort of start there, you're probably well aware that the NCAA updated its interim rules regarding student-athlete name-image likeness activities. They put out advisory about institutional involvement in student-athlete NIL, and they laid out a whole bunch of guardrails about what is permissible and what is impermissible. And if you look to the items on the list of what is impermissible in terms of institutional support for student athlete NIL activity. One example, one item on the list is provide services other than educational to support NIL activity unless the same benefit is generally available to the institution's students. So in other words, if an institution wanted to provide tax preparation advice, contract review, graphics design, to students involved in NIL activity, they have to make that available to every student on campus. Is that happening? That's being offered. Is any student other than an athlete actually taking advantage of it? How closely is the NCAA's enforcement mechanism uh, scrutinizing these activities? Not very. Frankly, under the new NCAA president, Charlie Baker's regime, I doubt that enforcement will be a priority because he is attempting to re-strategize the whole mission and purpose of the NCAA. Uh, So you're not going to find, I think, many enforcement efforts happening on the NCAA side. And I should say um, something I apologize for omitting from my bio, but I am an NCAA independent arbitrator as well. And one of the reasons I don't mention that too often is that it's a a limited term that is almost expired. So I'm not going to be an NCAA arbitrator for much longer. And so none of these NIL cases will ever come in front of me uh, as an NCAA arbitrator. But I also don't think there will be many instigated. And in terms of states and feds, I mean, look at the history of state and federal enforcement of what I love how Greg described as photo opportunities, right? So exhibit one is Sparta. Uh, which is the Federal Agent Sports Agent Regulation. Um, It's been in existence now for 20 years. It requires sports agents to protect athlete, amateur athlete eligibility through a number of measures that include full disclosure of the risks to athletes in retaining an agent. 20 years this uh, statute has been in existence. Does anybody know how many times it's been invoked in a federal, civil, or criminal enforcement proceeding? I bet you do. (laughs) Zero. Zero.
1: (laughs) Big noose egg.
2: Right. Zero times. So my prediction for enforcement of the various state statutes consistent with their photo opportunity genesis is there will be zero enforcement on both sides, right? They have provisions in those statutes that regulate the NCAA. You can't withdraw scholarship aid to a student who monetizes their NIL. They're not going to spend much effort seeking out those uh, episodes and, and and enforcing the statute, but nor are they going to enforce the statute against college students who breach provisions addressed to, for example, uh, some states' NIL statutes prohibit college athletes from associating their NIL with vice products like gambling or cannabis
3: or alcohol beverages. If a student does that, is there going to be an enforcement action? I doubt it. So on the NCAA side of things, right, it's interesting because that guidance that you were talking about came out, what, October or so of this past year, and Charlie Baker since taking over on March 1st has said that, you know, one of the missions going forward for the NCAA is to kind of focus on consumer protectionism of student athletes insofar as needing to put protections in place calling on on Congress again to you know issue some kind of federal legislation to protect student athletes um, from being taken advantage of what do we think about that is that double talk then is that because it doesn't really seem if you're going to put guidance in place that doesn't allow for these programs that would help student athletes practically going forward in these Nil deals and you know you have to make it that all students of university need to have Access to them than. Charlie Baker is moving forward in a NCAA that
2: has already significantly restructured. So, another bit of blowback after Alston and the state NIL statutes became effective is that the NCAA convened essentially a constitutional convention to rewrite, to redraft its constitution. And one of the things that it did, I mean, you could tell how significant the redraft was in that the former NCAA constitution was 40-some-odd pages long. I'm just talking about the charter document, not the hundreds of pages of bylaws and, and regulations. The new NCAA constitution is 22 pages long, and it strips out from the NCAA most of the governing authority. It reduces the NCAA's functions almost to its 1906 inaugural year, right? They now retain primarily seven areas of responsibility, conducting championships, promoting gender equity, developing health and safety guidelines, establishing rules for sports competitions, managing the NCAA's intellectual property, maintaining historical and statistical records, Right, So if this is what's left of the NCAA, if they have stripped themselves of regulatory authority beyond that, what happens next is largely in the hands of the divisions. And the byproduct of the NCAA's constitutional convention was that the authority delegated to the various divisions, divisions one, two, and three, is now being articulated through their own constitutional conventions. Each of the divisions, including Division I's Transformation Committee, you can tell by the name what they have in mind, is going to rewrite the rules of academic eligibility, of amateur status, of what kind of student-athlete benefits can be provided, even above and beyond what Alston said um, was permissible, what uh, NIL rules should be put in place, so we're still in a moment of great flux and change, and Charlie Baker, as the leader of this process, is going to partly be led by what the divisions have in mind for future regulation.
4: Is that an improvement with the NCAA going back to uh, you know, an earlier iteration?
2: Well, my personal view, and it is just my personal view, is that the NCAA should never been in the business of what I call discrimination. They should never have decided to carve out a separate body of regulation and behavior control for college athletes alone amongst students who participate in college extracurricular activities. Any other student on campus with a special talent or skill is entitled to freedom of choice and of exploitation of that talent or skill, right? So... If you have a violinist for the university orchestra, while they do have an obligation to show up to practice and will lose their seat in the orchestra, if they don't comply with orchestra rules, nobody stops them from playing their instrument for money in any other setting, for performing or teaching or engaging with the music industry any way they choose. There are no rules that monopolize their talents the way that college athletics rules do for athletes, right? So why did the NCAA stray in this direction? Why are there this complex, granular set of rules that govern every aspect of college athletes' life? Because there was a period of time in which colleges were enrolling athletes who actually never went to school, who were being paid to play states back to the 20s and 30s and 40s of the last century. And they felt that the way to control or police that was to deprive college athletes of freedom to monetize their talents off campus any way they chose. There were other ways the NCAA could have approached that regulatory challenge. For example, not restricting what college athletes do, but restricting what the universities do you may not deploy an athlete on your field of play unless they are truly enrolled in the university taking a minimum number of courses, right? Or penalize institutions, not college athletes, for using ringers. They chose one direction, and over decades of regulatory accretion, the burdens on college athletes became greater and greater, and the disparity between the benefits that the university was receiving from their participation athletics and what they were receiving became greater and greater. It may be time just to dismantle the entire regulatory apparatus and say to college athletes, come to our universities and play. We will not treat you any different than any other student on campus. However, if you participate in this extracurricular activity, you have to abide by the rules of the activity. The violinist has to show up to rehearsal, five days a week ahead of a performance. And then they have to get to the performance on time and perform at their best. So do you as a college athlete.
1: You know, one of the things that you've mentioned and you're just describing those areas with the other students on campus, we do have student athletes now who are taking advantage of NIL opportunities for them. And I've had a number of schools call me in the last several weeks about student athletes who are coming into their athletic director or the general counsel's office who are having issues with their NIL deals in terms of receiving payment or enforcement, obviously there's a question there about what the colleges can do, but do you have any cautionary tales for student-athletes that you've experienced as to how they can best protect themselves as they enter into this new world of opportunity, of financial, hopefully financial wealth for some of them and opportunities for all of them?
2: Well, they do need good counsel. And since we're all learning on the job here, right, we're, we're flying the plane as it's being built, as they say, there will be unfortunate circumstances where college athletes are not being advised properly and are, are facing liabilities or, or missing opportunities that they should get. I will point out that some of the state legislation anticipated exactly the problems you're referring to. So, for example, in the very first uh, college athlete NIL statute to be passed, the one in California, it actually includes an obligation on the part of California universities to provide training in financial literacy and business management to all college athletes so that they could optimize their involvement with NIL exploitation. Similarly, in Illinois, I think the only state that might have this provision, their college athlete NIL statute includes a contractual limitation. Basically says, If you as a college student enter into an NIL deal, regardless of what the parties attempt to incorporate in that deal, by statute, that deal expires once the college athlete has exhausted their athletic eligibility. So the state is imposing a contractual term on every NIL deal entered in that state. What does that do? Well, that avoids the problem that is in that some college athletes have encountered once their eligibility has expired, in which they're bound to deals entered into while they were playing for schools. Now they're in the pros or they have other business opportunities that are richer and that are consistent with their professional obligations and their career trajectory, and they can't avail themselves of those because of exclusivity provisions in a college-era deal.
3: Funny that that you pointed out just now about state legislation directly contradicting NCAA guidance. We've seen that happen a few times now and we've seen that even in, so California now has another proposed law on pay for play and so does South Carolina. Um, I was wondering if you could speak to state legislation directly contradicting the NCAA and what, how that's played out so far, the influence that that has had on college athletics. So are you talking about the
2: legislation that Uh, basically uh, directs the NCAA or the conferences
3: uh, to share broadcast revenues with college athletes? Well, that doesn't direct the NCAA, but but directs the schools that would be receiving that revenue for the California law, yeah.
2: Right, right. So, I mean, there are a lot of aspects of that law that are questionable, um, including whether you can direct a copyright owner the NCA, in the case of March Madness, um, the conferences and individual schools in the case of other sports uh, which sell their rights to TV. Um, So they are the copyright owners. Can you direct them to share those revenues with participants in the event that's being produced? Can you rewrite federal copyright law through state statute? I I think that's highly problematic and um, an open question. And um, there are also some state laws that already exist that point in a different direction. So I'll give you an example. There was a, a case brought in Tennessee by college athletes seeking to have the Tennessee D1 schools share broadcast revenue with the college athletes based on their rights of publicity. They argued that The exploitation of their names, images, and likenesses on college football broadcasts needed to be properly licensed from them. They needed to be compensated for their appearance on college broadcasts. And Tennessee happens to have a very specific right of publicity statute, which says that your right of publicity is trumped by the need to make use of a name, image, and likeness for the purpose of news reporting, or sports broadcasting, among other categories. So as a a matter of right of publicity law, which is a state-by-state body of law, in Tennessee, anybody whose image is contained within a sports broadcast cannot monetize that uh, celebrity because that's exempt from the right of publicity statute.
4: Well, we have something similar in California, and as a copyright lawyer, I can't see the other statute that we're talking about in any way prevailing, but really what you're talking about is essentially a fair use under name and likeness or, or right of publicity in California, but but also under the copyright statute. Yeah. Because the only way they share revenue other than contracting between themselves is if the the, the, the players are deemed to be co-authors of the work. Exactly. In which case, they also have the right to license it.
2: Yes, And what may resolve this whole constellation of issues is where I think college athletics is heading, which is allowing them to be considered employees or coming to the point where their status shifts from being students to employees of the university. right? Because if they're first of all, on the copyright broadcast side of the picture, if they're employees of the university, then unless contractually determined otherwise, What they do on the playing field is work for hire. Exactly. Right. Um, And as employees of the university, we may resolve a whole host of issues where collective bargaining is possible, right? One of the ways that the professional leagues have resolved concerns about unfair recruiting practices and competitive balance and maintaining, sort of disciplining the team's owners as a as a financial matter is through collective bargaining. A collective bargaining in professional sports is as good for the owners as it is for the players in terms of economic rationality in the way business is conducted in those sports.
1: Got a quick question for you in relation to that, though. You know, we've had a labor board, a new general counsel who appeared under the Biden administration named Ms. Abruzzo, who's been very aggressive in her pronouncements that student-athletes shouldn't even be called student-athletes, they have to be called employees, et cetera. That's being litigated now. One of the things that I'm always curious about, first of all, do you think that will ultimately uh, end up with the student-athletes being reclassified as employees under the NLRA? That's my first question.
2: I don't think there's a monolithic answer to that. So despite the general counsel's uh, opinion letter, which seemed to point in the direction of a a global designation of all college athletes as employees, what what you're seeing where it's actually been litigated is that it's very much situational. So there have been federal court cases brought under the Fair Labor Standards Act seeking to classify college athletes as employees. And different courts come out different ways, depending on who the college athlete is, what sport they're playing, what division they're playing in, whether the sport is revenue generating, whether they're scholarship students. The test for whether somebody should be classified as an employee, commonly referred to as the primary beneficiary test, has multiple factors and elements, and they need to be weighed in a very fact-specific manner. And so I don't think you're going to get a nationwide Athletes Are Employees designation. I think what you'll get is sort of a case-by-case ruling. And granted, with the NLRB's general counsel weight behind the employee status question, maybe the needle will be pushed further in that direction than it might otherwise be. Uh, but I, it's it's got to be litigated on a, a basis of a factual record. So right now you have the unfair labor practices claim being brought by a putative af- college athletes union against USC out in California. Um, that's at very early stages. Amongst the factors that will be considered are that it's a private institution, not a public institution. As you know, uh, public employees are not subject to NLRB jurisdiction. That Federal labor policy did not displace or preempt state labor laws, and state universities and their putative employees, college athletes, are not subject to the NLRB's jurisdiction. So that would have to be separately adjudicated or regulated through state labor law. So you have this lone private institution, USC, now dealing with a charge that they need to consider their college athletes to be employees. On the East Coast, you have the Johnson case, which was just argued in the Third Circuit. A bunch of college athletes in East Coast schools, including Villanova and other schools, private schools, have sued under the Fair Labor Standards Act to be deemed employees and receive back wages uh, on a motion to dismiss, which the NCAA brought, arguing that as a matter of law, college athletes could never be deemed employees. Uh, the, the, not the NCA, the universities brought, the universities lost that motion, right? So, um, they wanted a ruling on the pleadings before there was any discovery or any factual record developed that college athletes could never be employees. The court rejected that motion, uh, and the case was set to proceed to developing a factual record when the Third Circuit granted a rare interlocutory appeal um, and heard argument a couple of weeks ago. Everybody thought when the Third Circuit granted that appeal that, well, they never do that unless they disagree with what the trial court did. Then oral argument takes place and the Third Circuit panel dreamed the colleges and institutions. Um, it's. You always are reluctant to read tea leaves based on oral argument, but it sounded like there was consensus on the bench that this case should absolutely move forward to develop a factual record on whether these college students should have been considered employees.
1: It was interesting. It appears as though Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence uh, always seems to be referenced and thrown in there whenever it's possible in all these cases. The one other thing with the NLRA, which I thought was interesting, with the student athletes, one is initially they tried to get UCLA as part of that unfair labor practice charge, then they dropped it, which I thought was very interesting. And now, from what I understand, the same person who's been the impetus behind the unfair labor practice charge, who was a non-athlete, used to be an athlete at UCLA, he has now filed and been behind a discrimination claim that's been filed with the EOC against UCLA recently, claiming that black student athletes, particularly football players, have been discriminated against. My one question for you, which I think would be interesting, is assuming uh, that they are named and made to be employees of the university, do you see a strong impetus for those student-athletes who would now be employees running and unionizing? And I'll just say I don't think so because I think they're happy with their NIL rights and they don't necessarily Hmm. want to pay union dues. But I was just curious what you think uh, would be the outcome of that.
2: There are a lot of obstacles to student-athletes unionizing, cheap amongst them, that most conferences comprise state universities with just most of the D1 conferences, uh, comprise state universities with just a sprinkling of private universities. And if you recall back seven, eight years ago, when the Northwestern football players attempted to unionize, right? So Northwestern, the sole private institution in the Big Ten, comprised of all state universities, the regional director of the NLRB granted them permission to attempt to unionize, and they even held a vote which was kept secret pending appeal to the full NLRB, the full board, which vacated the decision below and never unsealed the vote on um, prudential reasons. The prudential grounds for not allowing them to be declared employees and unionize was because the conference would be disrupted if only one team amongst then 12 was subject to a collective bargaining agreement, that they assessed that the conference-wide engagement with college athletics would not be possible if different athletes played under different rules with respect to the activities of preparing for and engaging with the sport, right? So not that the rules on the football field would differ, but that the rules around compensation, Practice, travel, would be determined by a collective bargaining agreement at Northwestern that could be in conflict with the operational requirements of every other football team in the Big Ten. So that's that's sort of one obstacle as a practical or prudential matter. College athletes may decide it doesn't make sense to unionize, but that doesn't mean they wouldn't seek all the other benefits available under federal and state law as employees. Of course, there are risks to being employees as well, especially tax liability which I think is something that's not getting enough play in this conversation, right? You receive a scholarship over four years that at some universities is worth a quarter of a million dollars. That's tax-free. If that scholarship goes away and instead you're receiving taxable compensation, you're receiving income, many students on campus who are getting a quarter of a million dollars worth of benefits through scholarship are not playing in revenue sports. If they stop getting that scholarship money and get income instead, it won't be a quarter of a million dollars. It'll be a lot less, and they'll still maybe have to pay tuition, and they'll have to pay taxes. Granted, the top 3% of D1 athletes who eventually make to the pros might prefer a world in which they are compensated through income rather than scholarships, but I'm not sure that's a universal view amongst college athletes.
1: I think that's an interesting point, And and the really interesting thing is that the the gentleman who pushed forward on the Northwestern is the same gentleman who's pushing right now with his outside association uh, with regard to the USC unfair labor practice charge. So it's very interesting. In there, and the fact that there has not been one student athlete, despite urging from the general counsel, who stepped forward and offered a willingness to file a charge in any way, shape, or form to try and establish their rights as employees under the NLRA. Just an interesting point to note, because I know they've been trying to recruit student athletes to do that, and no one is willing to step up and take that ball and run with it. So, uh, interesting comments.
4: Well, that's fascinating about the, the taxes. dude, uh, can I just ask you, though, but with respect to if these kids are, are being compensated for their name, image, and likeness, I mean, I, I'm imagining that the idea is that they're going to get a lot of money for this, for some endorsement, and certainly that's being taxed. Are you seeing any blowback vis-a-vis the tax implication there?
2: Well, I think that we might be in the sweet spot for college athletes at this moment, tax-free scholarship and any other education related benefit, right? So all of the education related benefits are arguably not taxable income. Um, And in parallel to that, these students can generate income now, they're permitted now to monetize their talents and celebrity through NIL deals. That will, if they're advised uh, competently, incorporate in their financial planning the ultimate tax liability for those deals. Uh, So this might be the sweet spot in terms of college athletes optimizing the monetization of their talents, not being considered employees, receiving full boat guaranteed scholarships. Scholarships can now be guaranteed and also being able to earn some money on the side through these NIL deals. At least as a general matter, there may be outliers who say, I want to get paid no matter what.
1: There is a concern now with some of the larger NIL deals. Since they're relatively new, uh, there is some concern about making sure the student-athletes understand their tax liability because, again, they're independent Mm -hmm. contractors, Mm -hmm. so there's no withholding from that money they receive. So they're going to get 1099 and if they got, let's just say, $10,000, 15 dollars 20, 25 and they've spent all of it, all of a sudden they're going to have a tax bill and they don't have any revenue that's left in their pocket to pay that tax liability. So there's definitely a concern. I hear that from a number of schools that we work with, is they're, they're being very cautionary with their student-athletes trying to make sure they're prepared for that tax liability.
4: That comes back to what Christina was asking about earlier, about the financial literacy that's being offered. It seems like all the more that that's important. I'm Kind of curious as to whether you, Greg, and you, Jody, are seeing that happen much with respect to these students, even, you know, in California, outside of California. Is, is that getting any traction? Yes.
1: Yes. Yes. You're seeing a lot more, and I think Jody will agree with me. There are more than a couple states that have this requirement in their, in their proposed legislation or the current legislation, and there are a number of schools who are voluntarily incorporating that into their student-athlete NIL policy uh, in their campus work. So, yes, I am seeing a lot of schools as well as, uh, you know, basic recognition of the importance of that education.
0: Well, you know, Jody, you mentioned that this could be the sweet spot for collegiate athletes, for student athletes. And yet, as I listen to the conversation, the considerations they have to deal with are really quite complex and, um, and certainly beyond... This fear of what most uh, young athletes coming out of high school into college can comprehend. and it's easier said than done to provide financial literacy to say that. It's you know that's a, a potential can of worms. And so I, I want to understand what are the, the safeguards? you know where can we prevent abuse and, and mismanagement? Because this is really complicated stuff for for the typical young athlete.
2: I agree, and um, these athletes, while they are uh, incredibly talented and accomplished in their sports, that's often been to the exclusion of developing other types of competencies. They put so much of their youth into perfecting and managing their uh, talents on the playing field, uh, that they've ignored other aspects of their education. And at the very elite level, adults have stepped in to take care of business for them. They are not very good at adulting in any other walk of life. Um, they can't. They don't know how to manage their domestic arrangements. Um, they don't understand how finance works. Um, they are especially unskilled in inverse proportion to how skilled they are on the playing field. And so what does that mean? I mean, it means they, they need competent, well-meaning counsel like the folks on this podcast, uh, And but they're not all getting it. And the universities are somewhat reluctant to step in while they are providing the financial training. They are somewhat reluctant to provide the kind of hands-on guidance because of restrictions the NCAA places on them precisely providing that kind of guidance and how trustworthy is that guidance from the perspective of the athlete because the universities are naturally conflicted. They have uh, their own sponsorship deals that they're concerned about. They want the athletes to focus on their performance of their sport. So where do these athletes find truly independent, competent representation and advice? I think that's a real challenge.
1: Totally agree. And that's something one thing I've heard, and I haven't seen it come to fruition yet, but a number of schools are asking, especially that have law school affiliates as part of their organization, asking for essentially lawyers to volunteer and provide almost like a setup for student athletes, as you said much earlier, not only for necessarily for NIL, but in general, uh, so they can cover that and just you know see if student athletes or any other students were willing to participate with volunteer lawyers who've been educated at the law school at these various affiliated schools. So. I don't know if it's going to take them off or not, but it's certainly an interesting angle.
2: Well, it's interesting that you raise that because my colleagues across the country on clinical faculties are telling me that they've been somewhat stymied in providing that assistance because a law school clinic that offers assistance to student athletes for the purpose of NIL exploitation is violating NCAA improper recruiting inducement rules. Wow. Interesting. So what they've had to do is set up a clinic that offers those services to every student on campus. They have to make sure it is clearly advertised to athletes and non-athletes alike and that they solicit clientele from non-athletes. Otherwise, it could be seen as an improper recruiting inducement and a
3: violation of pay for play. I think I've also seen another work around where clinics like that are either set up within a law firm that's unaffiliated with the school, just offering this service, I guess, pro bono, or through a law school that does not have its own athletic teams, schools that are not attached to an undergrad. Yep, that's exactly right. New York Law School has that, yes.
1: All very interesting options.
3: Yeah. A
2: big question for the NCAA going forward is one point the Alston decision made very clearly is that antitrust analysis is anchored in market realities and markets change. So the NCAA kept throwing in the face of all of its antitrust challengers the 1984 decision in the Board of Regents case. And that decision included language which said that while the NCAA's television policy at the time violated antitrust laws, the other collective restraints imposed on the athlete market were appropriate because they protected the product differentiation known as amateurism. Okay, 40 years later, the Supreme Court says that was not a grant of antitrust immunity. In fact, that was what lawyers called dicta or what the Supreme Court described as a stray comment and that market realities change. And Uh, we're going to be willing to revisit antitrust um, restraints or or anti-competitive restraints as markets continue to change. So that was written in June of 2021. July 2021 comes along, the beginning of the NIL era. It's now almost two years later. I think market realities have already changed. I think that things are moving so rapidly that the argument that preserved something of the NCAA's regulatory apparatus back in as early, as as short ago as 2021, may no longer apply. The argument was that amateur brand college athletics was something consumers desired. Was, amateurism was necessary to differentiate the college athletic brand from other forms of engagement with athletic competitions from the consumer perspective. Is that even true anymore? Is there such a thing as amateurism really at this point? In 2015, the Ninth Circuit ruled in a case known as the O'Bannon case, another antitrust case. And it was one of those split the baby rulings, which affirmed that the NCAA's practices are subject to antitrust scrutiny, but also said, That a remedy the trial court had ordered, which is requiring the NCAA to establish trusts for all of its athletes in which they would receive post-graduation some amount of money attributable to NIL exploitation, that that remedy was not appropriate. And the Ninth Circuit um, reversed that much of the lower court's decision, saying the following, that the reason that remedy was inappropriate is because... If college athletes were ever to receive money for their NIL, they would no longer be amateurs. And the NCAA is entitled to maintain their amateur status because of the importance of product differentiation, of brand differentiation. Okay, so we now have heard from the Ninth Circuit only seven, eight years ago that if college athletes are to receive money for their name, image, and likeness from any source, they are no longer amateurs. Here we are it's 2023 they are no longer amateurs <laughs> is that brand differentiation a viable argument a viable defense to an antitrust claim at all going forward it is a professional it's a brand of professional sports as of June of July 1 2021 college athletics are now a brand of professional sports they are no longer amateurs
1: I look back and I wonder if our friends at the NSA wish they would have settled the O'Bannon case. <laughs> Uh, instead of going through with it because all this could have been avoided potentially if they would have reached some type of a negotiated settlement, that's for sure.
2: I was going to say, that's the hope with um, Charlie Baker, right? Right. One of the problems any observer of the NCAA could identify now for 20 years is they've been entirely reactive. They've reacted to the economic environment. They've reacted to legal challenges. It doesn't seem like anybody at the helm had a proactive strategy how to meet the future, and I think people are are placing their bets on Charlie Baker to do that.
3: You
1: are one hundred percent right.
4: So, my question for those of you steeped in the the, the sports world, which I am not, um, is: so, have you seen any drop off in audience viewing or engagement with with college sports since these amateurs became professionals? No.
2: <laughs> when I see the numbers, is the answer is no. The point was made in the Alston decision that one reason they could endorse the less restrictive alternative of allowing college athletes to receive any type of education-related benefit is precisely because the numbers in terms of TV audience, ticket sales, consumers' interest in college sports had not fallen over the prior couple of decades as college sports became increasingly commercialized that the amateurism brand had not been damaged by the increasing professionalization, commercialization of college sports. So therefore the NCA could not justify the tighter restrictions they had in place at that time in terms of benefits being offered to recruit college athletes. They raised the lid on that from cost of attendance to education related benefits, right? Undefined. And, and I think that lid is now blown off, right? Because now we have NIL and it's clear audiences are not declining for college sports, despite the fact that these athletes are now professionals.
1: Hmm. And what's interesting, Jonathan, just the, with the NCAA tournament ongoing currently, the opening round, which saw some upsets, some of the reports I've found indicate that they have had record, record viewership. And the first couple of rounds of the NCAA tournament. So I think to answer your question, it has not led to a lack of interest or a downturn in interest in collegiate sports. That's for sure.
3: And that's certainly the case in the state of New Jersey.
1: Mm, super interesting.
3: So as far as this being a sweet spot right now with the way things lie, as far as, you know, athletes being able to monetize their NIL but not being deemed employees yet, The problem with it is that we can't expect it to last, right? Because this is obviously not where things are going to stop. And it looks like the NCAA is maybe kind of waking up now, maybe trying to enforce things now. I mean, we just had the situation with the Cavender twins and John Ruiz, and it looks like that's the first one out of the gate, like the first shot at enforcement. Where do you see that going?
2: So I don't think there'll be any serious repercussions for any of those students who have been uh, now subject to NCAA enforcement scrutiny. Um, I think the enforcement powers are fairly weak. Um, The NCAA, despite there not being a realistic threat that states are going to come after them, they don't want to violate state law. Um, It's a bad look uh, either way. And so they're going to be very careful about withdrawing student eligibility or scholarships or imposing any other sort of sanction on students who cross the line. I think universities might be more at risk than the students in these cases um, but even then, I, I just, the NCAA
3: doesn't have the stomach anymore for fighting this battle. So why even try with that one? I mean, that, the, the sanctions in that case were fairly weak, just, you know, the way you just described. But, but why why try and why that particular situation? Because it's not like you know, we open this conversation with exactly that, right? NIL being used by boosters in as a recruitment tool is not an unheard of thing right now. So... I, why this particular? Well, it's, it's kind of like the lone sheriff in
2: the wild, wild west, right? They, they, they make a stand. Um, maybe they tame the uh, outlaws in one town, but there is a whole prairie full of these towns that um, they're never going to have the resources to get to.
3: You know, I, I think it might just be flag-waving. It just seems, I mean, especially because they went after a a woman's team first seems like a needless low blow from the NCAA. Not advocating that one, you know, one is better than the other, but you know what I mean? You know what I mean? Like women have had it hard already.
2: Totally agree with that. And it it reminds me of another point to be made about the new world of NIL exploitation is that one cohort of students who have been totally under-recognized and under-rewarded for their athletic prowess are the female athletes, are the women's teams, and women have disproportionately benefited from NIL exploitation, the women athletes on campus. The attention that they get from their own universities in terms of resources support, funding is now been sort of outscaled by the attention they're getting from the business community that seeks to use them as endorsers.
4: I hate to sound like a male, but that seems like at least a a silver lining.
2: Absolutely. No, no question that um, a lot of student populations are using NIL uh, to achieve some equity and especially the imbalance racially and otherwise between the revenue sports and the non-revenue sports. Right. So one complaint that has been made from a number of quarters, uh, about the current state of college athletics is that you have these revenue sports largely populated by black athletes and they are on, on, on their backs, the university is subsidizing all of the other sports on campus, which are majority white or are elite Olympic sports or sports that emerge out of highly privileged settings, like, you know, rowing and sailing,
4: tennis, lacrosse,
2: swimming, right? And so, one thing that NIL is accomplishing is reversing the lopsidedness of that equation, right? Where is all the money flowing, finally, um, is, is to the revenue sport athletes individually, right? So, it's not really the members of the lacrosse team or the rowing team who are getting these endorsement deals, right? It's, it's the members of the football team and the basketball team and good for them.
4: Yeah.
0: Amen. They've
2: been carrying the rest of the university on their backs, uh, for a long time.
0: But Jody, is there anything that you feel that we may not have discussed or addressed or anything that you feel that, that, um, our listeners would really want to know that perhaps we haven't hit yet?
2: I might just, end with the question that I start my sports law class unit on college sports with, which is what is the legitimate mission of the NCAA? Why do we need an NCAA? What should its purpose, goals, operation be? Uh, And can we reimagine it? Um, Can we start with a clean slate and reimagine what its role will be in the life of college athletics. I think they've started to do that with the revised constitution, and we'll hear more from the divisions as they come out with their division-specific legislation. But I think somebody at the leadership level of the NCAA needs to answer that question.
0: Well, that'll be interesting to imagine a post-NCAA universe and how it can govern or have a framework responsible framework for scholar athletes. Um, but thank you so much, Jody. I think we really benefited from this conversation, we really learned a lot. And um, it's, it's clear that we're really just at the beginning of a, of a renaissance of a real radical change going forward for student athletes, and especially as it relates to NIL. Thank you, Jody. Thank you, Jody. Great to listen to you as always.
2: Thank you all.
0: Your co hosts are Stephen Beer and Jonathan Pink. Our publicity producer is Ayush Kumar. Our technical producer is Noah Vandorf.